This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today. I am joined by my co-host, our editor-in-chief, Mark Galley. Hello. Hi, Mark. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> Sound like you just woke up. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, probably. I've been trying, uh, you know, not to give my woes to the to the listening group here, but yeah, I've been struggling sleeping lately. They can't get to bed till late. I'd get up late. Starts the day off on a bad note. So don't know what's going on. I did hear that similar complaint from an employee around your age today about there you struggle go. sleeping. Yeah, that's the way it is. You can look forward to that when you get my age. I can't wait. <laughs> All right. Who is joining us today? Our guest today is Christian Askelin. He's been Assistant Research Professor of Christian Origins at Indiana Wesleyan University. He has held many positions with the Museum of the Bible. Uh, his research uh, concerns the origins and diversity of early Christianity, principally the movements from which the relevant texts and manuscripts arose. So he comes highly recommended to us, uh, and we are really looking forward to this conversation. Hey, Christian. Hey, Morgan. Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. And where are you calling in from today? I am in Oklahoma City. All right. Good to know. As you, I think, informed us at the when you first called, this is the land of cowboy boots and pickup trucks and yes, the, the thunder, obviously. Yes, very much so. Well, it's great to have you here on the show. And I'm excited to get into the topic that we're going to be looking at today. So just to give everyone some context... Last year, the Egypt Exploration Society published a Greek papyrus. According to their judgment, this fragment of the Gospel of Mark could be dated between AD 150 and 250. But while this document was extremely old, this timestamp disappointed a number of people, many of whom had hoped that it could be traced to the first century. Last week, Christianity Today published a piece about this first century Mark saga, a story that has now played out for about eight years and running. One of the key figures in the drama, Jerry Pattengale, a university professor at Indiana Wesleyan, and until recently the director of religious education at Museum of the Bible, was deeply involved in the saga and wrote about his experience for CT. So I'm going to read a little bit about that. Over the last eight years, we learned that much was not as it seemed. There seemed to be a manuscript fragment of a gospel dating to the first decades of the church. Not quite. The manuscript seemed to be for sale. It wasn't, really. Now the world knows there were four early gospel fragments for sale, quote-unquote, and at the helm was an esteemed professor transitioning these days into a sort of Sir Lee T. being of Da Vinci Code lore. So today on Quick to Listen, we wanted to give all of you listeners a summary of what's at stake in this first century Mark saga and also illuminate the larger world of ancient biblical manuscripts. All right, before we start asking Christian all of our questions Mark, I need your reaction to this particular story we're talking about. 
Well, I had an opportunity to read it before it got published to decide uh, what it needed did happen to it to make to make it publishable. You're talking about Jerry's piece? Yes. Okay. And it was more arcane than the piece that we ended up publishing it. But even the piece that we published, we did our very best to try to make it understandable to readers. But it, the the background is so detailed that is it is is a difficult issue to grasp and to understand what's really at play and what's really going on. So on the one hand, I was really intrigued. Wow, that's an amazing world. There's a lot of complexity to it. On the other hand, I'm going, thinking, boy, I need to learn a lot more, which is one reason we both agreed this would be a great podcast. Yeah, I think I kind of <laughs> started reading this piece with all due respect to Jerry Pangale and was kind of just like, you know, like you're like thrown into a different world and people are talking about things using words that look familiar. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you don't exactly know what's going on. And reading it, I definitely didn't have any idea about what's at stake. In fact, at the beginning, I talked about this Egypt Exploration Society news. Um, and we published a piece about that. And I even remember when that piece came out last year, not exactly understanding the significance about this. And part of it is because I think it predates my time at CT. So I didn't kind of see the initial news that this made, but also, you know, what really is so special about finding a fragment of Mark from this time period? I'm not exactly sure. Right. So it's a good topic for us to get in today. So Christian, we have so many questions to get to, some of them about this actual story and a lot about this world in general, just starting with ancient biblical manuscripts. From one thing that I do understand is that like, the world of handwriting <laughs> and studying handwriting, which I believe is called paleography, plays a big role in kind of determining all of this. Can you maybe start there? Yes, that'd be a great place to start. So paleography is a um, is an extremely controversial subject at academic societies, and people uh, act to get really angry arguing over these things scholars do. It's, it's complicated because there's different kinds of manuscripts. If you have cursive manuscripts from later on in the medieval per period, you often have a scribe has written, um, they've identified themselves and they said when and where they've written the manuscripts. And so in those cases with people who are using, it's called a minuscule manuscript, which is written on parchment usually and in a, in a certain cursive handwriting that looks a bit like um, what we think of um, Greek characters, um, the lowercase Greek characters that um, modern texts are transcribed into and print, printing press uses. If you're using those, it's, it's a pretty reliable science because we have so many manuscripts with what I call a secure date that you can then, um, when you do have a hand that doesn't have a secure date, say a colophone or s some other circumstantial piece that gives you a high degree of confidence um, when it's from, you can date undated manuscripts with the secure manuscripts. On the other hand of the, the spectrum, you have Manuscripts that are written with capital letters that tend to be earlier. Um, they tend to be from either the Roman period or shortly after the Roman period. Often those don't have a colophone in it, identi identifying the case. In fact, it's extremely rare. With these these capitals, they're called uncials. You have a very, very small number of securely dated examples, maybe even four or five examples that you can really rely on. And they tend to look exactly the same for centuries. So when you assign a date range to those, very likely maybe a four century date range or more. Now, when we get to papyri, we move into a place where the kinds of hands that show, on, show up on papyri, which tend to be our earliest manuscripts, we have 
very, very few securely dated um, manuscripts. And actually, when people are dating papyri, what they're usually doing is they're using other manuscripts that have been basically dated on kind of a whole cycle of non-securely dated manuscripts. In other words, the the science of papyrology when it relates to, um, of, of paleography, when it relates to papyri and dating not just biblical papyri, but literary papyri, isn't really much of a science at all. It's a uh, a small group of paleographers telling you almost what their what their stomach feels like. I mean, they may be they may be listing other manuscripts, as in the case of this manuscript we'll discuss today, which have this. But a lot of times they're not they're they're listing manuscripts, other biblical manuscripts, which have no secure date themselves. To be fair to these uh, paleographers, though, I mean, they're judging these manuscripts at a different level than Morgan and I would judge them. <laughs> Sure, yes. So they would have at least a more more informed, but you're basically saying it's still very difficult to determine a date. Yes. And some of them would say things like they, they have a kind of presupposition which would say that um a manuscript style, like a certain hand, will appear and it'll be it'll be quite simple and it will become more complicated over t- over time and they'll create stages for that hand. And so uh, if if a hand looks ugly, then they will date that early for what they think they hand hand is. And then when it becomes more formalized, it's to the middle center of time. And then um, it, the term is decadent. So if, that, if it has serifs and little pretty things associated with it, they, they assume it's, it's a late hand. There's nothing necessarily scientific about that. I'm sure there's days, Mark, where your, your handwriting looks poor. And we wouldn't date that to the early or late period of your life. Maybe you're just stressed or you had too much coffee, or you didn't drink enough coffee. Um, certainly you can't, you know, there's, there's not really a science to that. That's more an idea of right. looking no. at manuscript no, hands like that. the way that ancient empires were thought of. Okay. So another uh, area, just to set up the frame by which we're going to be talking about these things, is the issue of cultural heritage and how that relates to uh, co- ma- manuscript controversies. This is, a, this is a helpful question because I think for a lot of people, when we think about biblical manuscripts, we begin to think about questions that might relate to apologetics or faith and how secure um, how secure our own Bible translation is. Did, is this really what um, what Jesus or the Apostle Paul would have said or the the author of whatever text? But we're we're in an interesting period of time where several cultural institutions and cultural sites, especially in the Middle East, but in other places in the world, are under attack. They're literally being, uh, they're being destroyed, sometimes simply because uh, groups like ISIS, they want to erase non-Muslim portions of the cultural history of the site. Um, in other cases, they're actually taking, taking things from the site or, or stealing things from museums and then selling them for profit to fund things. So it's it's unfortunately a time, not necessarily when it's um, that there's more illegal stuff happening than before, although in some cases probably that's that's happening in Afghanistan, Iraq, that there's there's certainly a rush of it right now. But it's become quite prominent, especially with the destruction of Palmyra, um, with destruction of all sorts of sites uh, by ISIS controlled areas in in Iraq with the the Egyptian Museum was uh, had a a small scale. level of destruction back in, I think, 2011 with the Arab Spring, the Iraqi National Museum itself after um, the the second Gulf invasion was looted, and our own occupying forces did nothing to stop that for a couple of days. So there's a, a couple of days of people just tearing the, the place apart. So anything, anything that shows up in the antiquities market and gets sold, and you can't prove that it doesn't come from a source like this, suddenly comes under suspicion. 
even if it was bought before then, before the most recent vows, before ISIS exists, people are still paranoid, and, and rightfully so, that things have, uh, they've not come from a good place, that um, purchasing them is funding people who aren't good people and who aren't actually protecting cultural heritage. Okay, so I, this goes into a longer thing that I've been even kind of like learning myself about the role of museums. So when museums have artifacts, Christian, museums are basically responsible for providing documentation about how they got it, or they have documentation that verifies what they know about a given object or how old it is. What is the legitimacy, I guess, that museums provide to artifacts? Again, we're in a we're in a place where it's extremely complicated. There's a there there are many um, international conventions and local, state, federal laws that are passed that theoretically could regulate these things. In the United States, property ownership is highly protected. So, if a person or if a museum owns something, you have the benefit of the doubt that it's yours and that you rightfully possess it. So, it's very difficult actually to. Um, to get a museum to give something up if they don't want to. The pressure is probably going to come from a museum organization or from uh, the wider popular community in, in some way. There is something, there's a UNESCO 1970 standard that says that um, as a rule of thumb, you should be able to trace the owner history back to 1970 and up till 1970 um, fr from there until the present, there should be no illegal movement. So in other words, it should not have left the country of or origin by 1970. Now, having said that, if you're a museum professional, you should know better. If you own an artifact that really was ever stolen for, at all, it doesn't matter if it's 1930, 1940, 1970, you really have to return it because it's it's stolen, it's illegal, and you're still going to do it. The real laws that count, if it's, say, an Egyptian item, will be the laws of Egypt at the time when it was exported. And so it's the question of was it, in, in the case of Egypt with a papyrus, was it legally exported from Egypt in 19-whenever um, or 18-whenever? Well, that raises an interesting question. Couldn't one argue that any ancient manuscript that we have in Europe or America has in fact been stolen from somewhere in the Middle East? Yes, especially under the context of colonialism, because if you, if you don't consider colonialism to be a valid expression of, say, democracy or, you know, free choice, and especially if you think of, um, if you think of cultural heritage as being something that you can't actually own, then you can, you can even say, even if it was illegal, you could say, hey, this is still our, it may be your physical property, but it's our cultural property. So this was, you know, if you've got bits of the Parthenon sitting in the basement of the British Museum, the Greeks will say, hey, you may have you may have bought this from somebody and you have certificates and it's been a very long time. But this is such a key part of the cultural heritage of Greece that it just doesn't belong in in London. There's an entire argument that even if you've settled all the legal, legal claims for property ownership, still say um, you're a Christian institution that comes into the possession of a Torah scroll, which was used in a Jewish worship service. Well, suddenly you have the issue of sacred heritage, which is a bit different from cultural heritage because you're a Christian institution with a Jewish cultural, you know, sacred object. And what, what are the, you know, what are the ethical ramifications of you having that? If your church, it might not be a big, big deal, but if you're a museum, then that's going to come into question. Same thing happens with human remains. You know, imagine if your uncle ends up in a museum and they put him on display. There's some ethics related to that. Yeah, and I can understand the tension because uh, 
uh, I would think some would argue, well, we don't want to return some of these uh, artifacts to the Middle East right now because they're likely to be destroyed <laughs> because of the Thank unrest you. there. So we're, we're gonna, we're, we need to keep them for now. You can see that argument going round and round. Uh, the, also, the argument is how are, how are people in the West ever going to come to appreciate our heritage if we don't get to see some of the original things? So I can understand where that would be a very complex issue to have to try to resolve at, in 2019. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so I want to circle back to this first century Mark saga situation now that we have a little bit more context. So what I think we were kind of trying to, I don't know, hint at, establish with you talking about this cultural heritage stuff is that these, or this alleged fragment of the Gospel of Mark came into being, I don't know, came into the the consciousness of this world during a time when you have a lot of artifacts go missing in the Middle East. Is that correct? Yes. From the point of someone who's an academic, and I did formally until um, until last December, I worked for Museum of the Bible during its its early years and um, resigned my position then. So I have a lot of firsthand experience with this in general. But as an academic who works with ancient manuscripts, especially um, ones written in the last phase of ancient Egyptian, which is Coptic and Greek, and, and their use in reconstructing critical editions, I've watched as the, the different scholarly societies have um, have adopted standards on this, on cultural heritage and what would even be permitted within the scholarly society. So the um, the kind of ancient Near Eastern society, which is ASOR, was really the first to um, to adopt a, a well-known standard. There's also one from the American Society of Papyrologists, which I think may have been before then. There was one from SBL, which essentially took over ASOR's position that was just a couple years back. And um, my own um, International Association of Coptic Scholars, that they're they're coming in and they're about to um, review this next summer and, and figure out standards for themselves. So this has become a huge issue, I would say, in the last 10 years. Today's episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by Promise Keepers. The Christian men's ministry that filled stadiums across America is once again calling on men to stand up and be counted. I spoke with Ken Harrison, chairman and CEO of Promise Keepers, about the event. Hey, Ken. So it sounds like just the sort of critical mass of people that you can get into a stadium is a big part of like the Promise Keepers value. The last real Promise Keepers event was in 98, as far as I would define it. Promise Keepers went from NFL stadiums down to arenas and then down into churches. And you know, really, once they weren't in NFL stadiums anymore, it wasn't really Promise Keepers because the whole point of it is just mass volume of guys because of the power that that generates. And also this feeling like, wow, not only am I not alone, but look at all these men who love Jesus like I do. Add the Holy Spirit, add some major authenticity and, and add some guys that are really focused and repenting before the Lord. And you have a power that you just can't replicate get anywhere else. You can't imagine what it's like hearing 70,000 men sing Amazing Grace. And uh, we're bringing it back. AT&T Stadium, home of the Dallas Cowboys, on July 31st and August 1st of 2020. For more information, go to promisekeepers.org. This episode is brought to you in part by Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Over 13,000 people in the Seattle area are homeless. Kathy is one of many who found a new life through Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Growing up, my dad and I didn't get along. I kept running away from home until one time I was assaulted. 
After that, I carried a lot of pain inside of me, and I was doing a lot of drugs. I became homeless. It's taken me almost 40 years to get the healing I needed, but all along, God was looking out for me. He led me to the mission, and the mission has helped me in all kinds of ways. I've learned how to set boundaries and say no. Now I'm looking forward to working for the mission. I want people to know there's hope out there. God can help you heal. And grace will lead me home. To hear more, volunteer, or donate, visit UGM.org. This is a story about the Museum of the Bible trying to acquire the fragment of the Gospel of Mark. I would, yeah, I would say that it's a little more complicated because it's typical for museums not to purchase items on their own. And this is where it becomes extremely complicated, actually. A lot of times they'll have a donor purchase the item and then um, and they'll donate it. And there can be tax benefits to that. Oh, so that's what it means when you go to a museum and it says it's part of so-and-so's collection? Yeah. A, a, a church may say, hey, if you've, if you've got a stock and you've made a lot of money on the stock, donate it to us and you don't have to pay tax. Um, you'll get the donation based on not the basis cost of what you bought the stock for. So you bought Google for a dollar and now it's $500. If you sell it and donate to the church, you have to pay tax on, you're going to pay some capital gains tax and then you lose it. But if you just donate the stock, you get the full market value of it. Getting back to the uh, to the Gospel of Mark controversy, let me summarize yes. what I seem to think the issue is, and you can say, well, it's much more complicated than that, Mark. <laughs> it seems to me that— <laughs> I can that, tell you what I'm going to say at the end. Go, go okay. for it. <laughs> it's going to be much uh, more complicated yeah, than that, seems, Mark. It seems to me, as I've read and skimmed the stories over the last couple of years, is that someone claimed to have a first-century Mark manuscript portion, Museum of the Bible or someone connected with Museum of the Bible, formally or informally— tried to buy it, wanted to buy it, and then uh, it was proven that this is not a first century manuscript at all. And the people who are arguing that it was, uh, although they were reputable scholars, are now in disrepute. And there's some question along the way as to whether the Museum for the Bible or anyone associated with it should have been seeking this out because it seemed kind of shady to begin with. (laughs) That's my layman summary. That's a good summary, and there's a lot oh. of stuff going on there. So you brought up you brought up the paleography issue. It's just the basic idea that we could have a first century manuscript. Obviously, the the New Testament was written in the first century, so there were first century manuscripts. Um, but the the fact that one of those would survive and we would have it, um, you've got the issue of um, acquiring ancient material culture, so artifacts for museum. And then there's the there's the scholarly issue of how do people who who are professionally like doing things as scholars, Christians, how do they look when they um, when they do this, and what are the what are the ethics, and and how do we move forward from this? So, just in, uh, again, in summary, without you know naming accusations, there is controversy over uh, how the Museum for the Bible was trying to acquire this. So, what are the two two sides on that issue? If there are just two sides. I would say that many of the people who are critical, uh, they're they're critical of it's going to be Hobby Lobby, which is the theoretical purchaser of the uh, the first century Mark fragment, and then um, by extension of that Museum of the Bible, which is heavily funded by Hobby Lobby, um, and then the other side, the Egyptian Exploration Society, and most notably this scholar Dirk Obank, who's who's worked with them and had some some central 
um, role in the uh, in, in the movement of this first century Mark fragment. But it becomes it becomes complicated from there because this is this is obviously a time of discovery for everyone. Part of it is rooted into a um, a Twitter announcement on December 2011 from Scott Carroll, if I understand right, in which he says this is, you know, it's the earliest Greek manuscript earlier than P52 is another. We, we like to give them, you know, numbers and things. It's So they're easily um, memorable. <laughs> yeah. And it's because there's Germans involved and Germans create numbers on there things with lots of zeros. So we, we had this Twitter announcement and then somebody else, you know, another scholar announced this at a, at a debate. And then Nobody heard anything for years. It was silence. Um, now, here's what's interesting, though. And we think about Christianity, and you think about, like, how many Christians there were living in antiquity. You think about Roman Empire. We're talking about maybe 65 million people. Depends on when you're talking about in the Roman Roman Empire, but 65 million people. In the first century BC, you didn't have any Christians because there's, like, no Jesus, right? And then Jesus comes. You still don't have any Christians because they're not called Christians till, till Antioch or whatever. But you have this movement that starts, and it's a very small segment of those 65 million people. By the end of the fourth century, you have a Christian empire, and Christianity grows in between those two points. So you would expect to have more manuscripts when you have more Christians, Right. And you look at the growth rate, and sorry if I geek out for a little bit, I'll try and keep this short. But if you have a growth rate that's between 2 to 3% annually, and, and if we pick a number just to make it easy, and we say that you have a 2.8% annual growth rate, which would, which would give us that movement from no Christians to a Christian empire by the end of the fourth century, you'd have a growth rate that said every century you have six times, 16 times as many Christians, right? But if we assumed our manuscripts to work that way, and we assumed we had one manuscript from the first century— and then we multiply by 16 to get the second century, we'd have 16 second century manuscripts, 256 third century manuscripts. And then by the fourth century, we'd have 4,096 manuscripts. Now, what I'm telling you is in terms of just total number of manuscripts, and we're talking about papyri right now in particular, our total count for papyri right now is I think 139 that are in the Gregory Alon list. And I'm not talking about 139 from the 4th century. I'm saying total count from even beyond the 4th century is 139. What I'm saying is the statistical odds of finding a 1st century papyrus make it so unlikely that anyone who claims to, to have found one, you would, you would assume they're crazy. Not because I don't believe in the Bible. I don't say I'm a devout evangelical. I'm saying that because statistically we would, we would, we would expect to find more manuscripts when we have more Christians. We have a limited amount of papyri. And we would expect to start finding them statistically from the third or fourth century onward. So this was explosive for apologetic reasons, but also for, for scholar, scholarly reasons. But in one sense, you know, I'm hearkening back to my fuller seminary days and having done a little bit of study of this. Even though our manuscripts come later than the first century, we don't have any really strong reasons to doubt their, their fundamental accuracy uh, going backwards, do we? My reading is that if we were to have discovered a first century manuscript, the odds are it'd be very similar to the third or fourth century manuscript. Have referred to it as an embarrassment of riches that we have um, we have so many so many manuscripts, not just Greek papyri and various forms of parchment manuscripts and things like that, but in terms of early versions that were translated extremely early with ten thousand manuscripts such as the the Latin Vulgate. In terms of Greek minuscule manuscripts, we're, we're heading in, in the direction of 6,000 manuscripts. So we have such a vast amount of um, 
of data that you can actually figure out in kind of catch and release theory, you can actually figure out what, what the deviation would be. You know, how much more would I get if I found another manuscript? How much is it adding? And you find statistically finding new manuscripts, although you always learn something more, it, it seems that there really is a lot found. What we have is, is very, even though it isn't exactly the same as the autograph, there's no reason to doubt there would be any immediate difference between um, the autographs that is the, the original by, say, the Apostle Paul and what we have now. And that's so much richer than any uh, other ancient manuscripts like um, uh, the works of Homer or Thucydides, from what I understand. I mean, is that correct yeah. to say? Sometimes this gets overstated because the, the Homeric tradition is very well attested and, um, and it's difficult to compare um, there's just very different kinds of texts. For instance, like Homer was there, there, there is no real autograph of Homer to even compare it to because it's literary. But if you do use something like Thucydides or, or pretty much any other author other than Homer, which, um, which is a good parallel, there, there really is no comparison, especially when you start adding in lectionaries, early versions, things like this. The evidence is like a tidal wave by comparison. So I just, yeah, that's the thing. I suppose that was the other reaction I had when I heard about the possibility of a first century manuscript. I thought that was intellectually interesting, but I didn't think it was going to change much in terms of uh, the reliability of New Testament manuscripts. So, All right, Christian, question. Where are these ancient biblical manuscripts coming from? Are these things that have been preserved in churches? Are they things that people are excavating and finding? Why were they even preserved in the first place? <laughs> so on and so forth. Yes. Yeah, so most of our papyri, and essentially really all of our papyri, come from Egypt. Obviously, there's a lot of the papyrus plant itself grows in Egypt. So that's one reason. But really, the main reason is that the, the conditions in Egypt are so favorable for, for conserving things. You, um, you have very little rainfall in Egypt, especially, um, especially as you move farther south. You've got a, a Nile flooding situation that produces produces the local water. So everybody lives in almost this, two, it's a two-dimensional country, even though there's loads of empty desert and some oases and some exceptions to the rule. Everybody's pretty much living within, say, a mile or so of the, of the Nile. And then if they want to, if they want to bury things, they bury it. And as long as there's no flooding in the Nile, it'll, it'll essentially stay there forever. So in Egypt, especially when we're talking about papyri, which were some of our earliest, um, earliest witnesses, we have a few small caches that show up with essentially perfectly preserved papyrus manuscripts with every page. What we're talking about today, though, is things that have been dug up after, after, out of the rubbish heaps. So these are discarded papyri or papyri that may be wadded up in the ball. There's... Um, Somebody pointed out one recently, which was clearly had been used as toilet paper, which is quite gross. But um, so, so you have these kinds of things, and, just, in particular, this. <clears throat> wow, just part of the job, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's these it's these discarded bits. Okay. I did want to get into that just a bit because our editorial director told me he thought that was one of the more interesting things going on right now. So the the discover of these garbage or rubbish manuscripts. Has it led to some new insights or affirmed things that are significant for Christians? Absolutely, yes. And it's it's a part of many, many different discoveries that have happened in the, the era of the the airplane and the automobile. And, and then further on when you have, um, you can take pictures of things and whatever. But since, if we, if we think back to like Wycliffe, who's you know, translating the Bible, he's 
translating from Latin because that's what he's got. And then by Martin Luther, you've got a you know a knowledge of Greek. You've got some Greek manuscripts that have come into into Europe, and so we've got a, a whole era of manuscript translations that are from the original languages from the 16th century on. But when you look at the Greek text that was used, that was behind that, um, you're talking about a very finite number of manuscripts. And they're essentially, you know, they're generally speaking later manuscripts from the Byzantine period. By the time we get to the late 19th century and through the 20th century, we start getting these papyri. Um, So instead of having manuscripts that may be as late as the 14th or 15th century, you've got papyri, which, you know, very easily are going back to the fourth century, if not third century, or even theoretically earlier. But, um, and, and there's, there's many, there, there's a significant number of pyre that clearly can be dated to the fourth century. So this is, you know, it's like moving back a thousand years. And then you have other manuscripts that are coming in from ancient monasteries and such things like Mount Sinai and, um, and various other monasteries in Egypt that bring in all different kinds of translations, as well as, as Greek manuscripts from the first millennium. Okay, so you find a manuscript. I don't know what that looks like, but let's say you find it. What happens next? Like, how is it preserved? Where does it go? Who gets to hold on it? Who gets to keep it? What what What's the chain of events that follows after that? Well, colonialism was very good to various museums and universities in Europe. So actually, right now, one of the main places that manuscripts are discovered is that limited places in the U.S., but especially some of the big institutions across Europe, which during the colonial period either acquired these through concessions with the Ottoman Empire. So they were, um, the Ottomans were essentially forced to allow various um, European groups to, um, to extract cultural heritage things and, and bring them home, sometimes selling them. In, in the case of the univer- two scholars at the University of Oxford who were working with something called the Egyptian Exploration Society, they were able to gather an extensive set of funds from really all over the place and carry out a large number of excavations in Egypt so that at this point, if we exclude anything that may be in, in holdings that are unknown within Egypt, you've got 500,000 papyri just in, it's not owned by the University of Oxford, but within the, the halls of the University of Oxford that are Egyptian Exploration Society. And it's hard to compare how many, you know, what a huge collection that is. I think the next largest collection is the um, the Archduke Rainer collection in Vienna, which has a total of 200,000 items, but I think only 160,000 are papyri. And then after you go down from that, you're talking about collections with like 5,000 papyri in it. So one of these collections where people, there's so much that was brought out that they just couldn't publish it at all. That the, the number of the piece we're talking about today, if, if I understand, is 5,345. Remember I said there were 500,000, half a million papyri there. A lot of them are junk, they're unreadable. But somebody sitting down and going through a microfilm, which is I believe what happened here, um, somebody going through a microfilm, especially with a regular expression-guided you know, computer search program, you can identify all kinds of things you know, quite quickly. What if we were to step back and say, okay, I'm I'm uh, walking around, I'm in Israel, and I am on an archaeological site with a tourist group, and I go off by myself for a little, little while, and I end up kicking over a rock, and underneath it I find a manuscript, an ancient manuscript, which appears to be an ancient manuscript. What, is, what am I to do with that? What, what am I either legally or morally required to do at that point? Um, so it'd be, really, it'd be the laws of the state of Israel, and um, Israel's an interesting 
country. I'm not sure how their laws are changing now, but there's there's certain countries which have been um, they've they've had legal antiquities markets, especially Switzerland, Israel. To some extent, this has happened in London. Somehow, it would need to be reported to the Israel Antiquities Authority, and it would probably come into their possession. It would depend on where you, exactly where you were if you were in the West Bank, because then it becomes more complicated. Um, but assuming it's within the normal confines. I would assume that same procedure would be true in Egypt th- these days. You'd ha- you'd be responsible to turn it over to the government of Egypt. That's right. Yeah, it would be it would be automatically the prop- property of the state okay. of Egypt. The only the only state I think where you can bring things out where the in terms of at least in terms of the Middle East is um, Jordan. I think allows people with valid ex- excavation permits to to actually um, re- own and possess some of the things that they excavate. So when someone says they've discovered or they have in their hand a unusual manuscript that says X, Y, or Z or comes from this century, we're most likely talking about uh, something that's been stolen or bought and sold many times. Yes. Usually the thought is that somehow this has been, um, this came out of the country during the colonial period when, um, when in the case of Egypt, I think it was from about 1881 on, you have a 1881, 1882, you have a British protectorate. So England essentially owns Egypt in terms of being able to call the shots. But um, in that case, you have all these excavations that are happening that that are legal and things come out. And in the in the wake of that, lots of there's an antiquities market where people are buying things and bringing it out. And um, and generally speaking, if if, thing, if things were bought and brought out at that point. Egypt isn't going to probably lay claim to those. They're going to focus on things that have been brought out within, say, the last 50 years. Although they could, but they, they don't do that, especially like that collection I mentioned in Vienna. This was a cartel that was operating and buying things off the antiquities market. Ooh, antiquity cartels. <laughs> Intriguing. It, cartel meant something a little different in German back in the... Yeah. <laughs> up until the this beginning This is the, of the Da Vinci 20th. Code episode of Quick to Listen. It's so fascinating. Okay, so I just listened to this podcast that was talking about authority figures and structures. And in particular, they were talking about authenticating a painting that may or may not be painted by Leonardo da Vinci. Mm -hmm. And the point that the podcast host was making here is that it is challenging in these situations because many of these people who are dating this artwork don't necessarily want to be the whistleblowers on each other. Is this also a problem in the antiquity world as well? Yes. I I don't know if the phrase that I'm going to use will will work with what you're going to say, but it's the, you know, the emperor isn't wearing any clothes. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people don't want to tell the emperor that, especially when a lot of people have gone out of their way to repeat what the emperor has said or, or whatever. So another way to say it is that sometimes you have a consensus that's not really based upon fact. That's always a dangerous place to be. In the world of scholarship, we very much value people who have established names for names for themselves. And the easiest way to do that really is as a generalist. In other words, if you're um, if you don't necessarily go really deep on one thing, but you publish a lot on many things, that those are the people who become the most famous, and oftentimes they have the biggest voice. But with something super nerdy like this, a lot of times it's the specialists who really understand that. Um, they're they're known in their subdisciplines, and so those are the people who um, who really get left out of the conversation. I'm not how, sure how it would work with the, the Da Vinci thing, but clearly with first century Mark, there were a lot of people saying, "Hey, 
this isn't, this is insane. You know, why, why don't we, why don't we do this? And, and personally myself, I've always just said with first century Mark, it's just not even, it's not a, a real possibility that we would have this, you know, if the fact that somebody would say this without putting forward the evidence shows that there's probably isn't no evidence. It wouldn't, it's just not a, a reasonable thing to do. Can you give us a little bit, now, now that we have so much more context, this will help me. I will really understand things now, I hope. Who was the person that made this claim exactly? And can you give us a sense of where they fit into the antiquity world that we've been discussing? Yes. there's Nobody's really wanting to take responsibility for making that claim. And the uh, the Egyptian Exploration Society even made a statement in 2016 which suggested that they had never sold it and that um sorry can you back up in 2011 what exactly is yes. the Egypt Exploration Society I know we mentioned them at the top of the show but I actually don't know who they are how they exist everyone now agrees they are the the current rightful owners of the um the papyrus and they uh, they own the oxy the oxyrhynchus um excavations and, and various other other sites that were excavated too so they have this massive trove of papyri half a million that were excavated from Egypt in the the end of the 19th and especially the, be, the beginning of the 20th century. So really beginning of the 20th century. So um, they made a statement in, in spring 2016 that related to this item actually being published. So this was a surprise to everyone that there was a mention going back to December 16, where there's a Twitter mention. And then but later there's a mention um, by a, a scholar at a, a debate that there's this first century Mark fragment, which is exciting because actually Mark is not well attested among papyri. It's one of the le- it's the least popular of the gospel gospels in, in ancient manuscripts. You know, it's not part of the lectionary tradition and things like this. So when it actually appears, when it when it shows up in, in the, the EES, the Egyptian Exploration Society says, yes, this is ours. It's quite a shock. Nobody had nobody had really expected that. Some people had thought Dirk Obink, the um, senior figure from there, who's won a MacArthur Genius Grant and many other accolades, and very much an esteemed scholar, when he was indeed involved, it was it was quite a surprise. This particular piece, at one point, um, before people knew it was Mark, was marked was was listed. Somebody had written a note that said first second century. So there was a there was an argument from someone who didn't realize they were dating a biblical manuscript, dating it to that period of time. Now that's not a crazy time period to date something to for the Greco-Roman period because this is what we call the Pax Romana. It's the period of greatest prosperity in the Roman Empire. So if you have a tax receipt, statistically we get more from from this period, um, running up to about one one eighty A.D. From than, than from really any other period in um, in papyrology in Egypt. So these are two key dates. It's the very end of 2011, and then back in 2016, the EES says, "Hey, this was never this was never um, you know we we didn't sell this." Um, Dirk Obink was involved, and he showed it to someone in their their office, and they indicate that they've they realized that they had first century mark and wanted to publish it at that point, but they didn't. Gotcha. Kind of take any blame or, or mm-hmm. suggest who's, whose fault this is. So basically the Egypt Exploration Society houses and has this kind of, I don't know, is library the right word where people can go and study their giant vault of papyri? Their stuff is uh, it's housed within the University of Oxford. Okay. So they don't they don't necessarily have their own building anywhere. They have a board of directors that's made up of various scholars and other persons, but they don't... 
And if you're an uh, antiquities researcher, don't... you could ask for permission to study some of their papyri. Yes, yes. Okay. That's helpful. I'm just trying to understand the mechanics of this a little bit more. Well, I'm sure, as we've kind of suggested through this out, that this world has its share of controversies. Do you want to maybe share one or two other ones in case people are interested in some of the other things that have um, been a source of tension in this field? Well, we've really there again. There's so many things going on. There was a um, there there was a book that came out called Bible Nation by Candida Moss and Joel Baden, who um, especially in the first half of the book talked about the challenges of of opening a um, of opening Museum of the Bible and and the donor groups that are working with them, and the realities of um, of tax laws and the ability to you know if you buy a manuscript for you just use any number. Say you buy it for a thousand dollars, and then you donate it for, um, and you get a hundred. You know, two years later, a hundred thousand dollar tax write off. Obviously, that's that's a significant tax advantage that you're taking. If it's not, if the manuscript isn't what you say it is, then there's a question of who's, you know, who's who's kind of to blame with that. Or what if it is what you say it is, but it's not a mu- museum grade object. In other words, it can never be displayed in the museum because it'd be a violation of the various um, accreditation entities you work with. It would be a, a violation of their standards. You could never publish it because it would violate the standards of the various groups that publish things and have these kinds of standards. What if it's a fake? And so in this sense, you haven't necessarily done anything wrong. You've been duped and you're, uh, you're, you've, you've bought it under you know all the best pretenses and uh, maybe even the... Um, the purchasing, like the paperwork, the ownership paperwork, which we call the the provenance um, data, is 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 even fake too. But at that point, you're dealing with a whole series of problems that say, "Hey, you're this museum that claims to be, you know, a standard for understanding and interpreting ancient culture, and an obvious fake gets by you." So, this is all to say, if somebody's confused after hearing all the things I've said, and it just sounds like a lot of, it's because it is. It's you don't you don't even know. There's so many things that have gone wrong with an institution that should have been the first institution to sort these things, and yet it actually becomes the institution that ends up causing it to happen that you don't know you don't know what to do with it. And it becomes logistically more complicated when you understand the the tight ties. Um, and, and this is something that came up at the beginning of the show between you don't understand what Hobby Lobby is doing and Museum of the Bible is doing. Clearly, they should be two separate things. They're each safeguarding their own interests and their mutual interests. But when you don't have checks and balances and you don't have um, especially um, younger experts who are, who are able to um, stop something that, that they you know, put the brakes on something that doesn't look right, then five, ten years down the road, you've got a big problem. So I think that you kind of got this, but I do want to kind of tie it back up together for people. What I understand you saying is we have these places like the Egyptian Exploration Society, and they encourage researchers to come look through all the papyri that they have. They have so much, right? And then all obviously these scholars will then write up their findings if they feel that they're somehow noteworthy or newsworthy um, or kind of make them make other people aware of them. At which point is the stuff at the Egyptian Exploration Society also available to purchase then? Is that something that, I don't know, very wealthy people can then go about buying? So uh, I'd love to say absolutely not. There was there was a point where people who paid in and supported the digs 
would um, there were papyri distributions, mm-hmm. and those and this is something that has not recently happened, but um, a lot of times those were institutions in the United States who would then receive those. They would get some papyri afterwards, and it was usually something that was of interest to that institution. Those were pieces that had been published in one of the one of the Oxyrhynchus volumes. So those things have come on the antiquities market. So a person could, and in fact, this has happened several times in recent history, could buy these things from there. And Oxford, though, especially something that wasn't published, absolutely not. It would be, it, it would, yeah, there, nobody has the ability to sell it. It would have to be some situation of financial exigency approved by the board or something, which is not on the table. So if you are acquiring anything from the antiquity world these days, because of places like the Egyptian Exploration Society that don't let you buy things, you may, or there's a strong likelihood that you would end up buying stuff that was um, somehow plundered illegally. Yes, very much so. Because that's what's available at the point at this yes, point. Yes, yeah. Okay, and then after you've acquired said thing, then you have a strong incentive to donate it because of the way that our tax laws are set up. Yes, yes, especially if you've done your homework. Just wanted to connect all the dots there because I'm like I right now I don't think like an antiquity dealer, <laughs> but so, <clears throat> let's uh, let's think about it as a consumer, quote unquote, consumer of muse- ancient museums and the like. Maybe a way to close would be to ask uh, what questions should a typical viewer of manuscripts as they're working through a museum or a special uh, exhibit that's come to town and they're looking at ancient manuscripts, could be the Dead Sea Scrolls, could be New Testament manuscripts. What questions should they uh, have as they enter into that experience? If I'm speaking to a Christian audience, which I think I am with Christianity Today, is I, I would want to say that um, if something's done well, it should be it should help you understand that the world is a more complicated place than you previously thought it um, would be. And this is part of, as, as Christians, we believe that there's a creation and we're part of the creation. Um, we're not, we don't, we're never going to understand everything. We're, we're going to see, we're going to see things dimly. And um, so going to the, one of these, one of these institutions should, um, it shouldn't necessarily answer all your questions, but it should help you to, um, you, you should come to a place as you're a thinking person where you understand that um, the things related to your faith, but even just things related to the broader world are very complicated, and that's okay. The, the things are complicated. There's no easy answers. If you're, um, if you're somehow caught in a situation with, um, with cultural heritage, it's very complicated. I mean, if, if you have, if a museum has papyri that are, you know, there's, there's huge question marks over them, and they're from, say, Egypt, you can't simply just return them. You have to do the, the institution that own that that now is is currently holding them needs to do their homework, figure out exactly what happened, and then you're going to negotiate with the Egyptians to see if they even want them back or if there's a if they can be on permanent loan and these kinds of things. So I guess um, fr- from the from the terms of you know encountering things that happen in the museum, whether it's a Christian museum or not a Christian museum, you always allow yourself to be um, surprised, to be challenged, to be fascinated with how complicated the world is and not see that as a threat. Um, you don't need everything to um, to somehow fantastically affirm your your faith. From the more brainiac side of things, it's it's recognizing just how complicated this is, and that um, that our own culture isn't the only one. That a lot of the reasons that we have things from other countries is because we took them, <laughs> from, or we paid for them from people who were who were just desperate for even a small amount of money. Well. 
Thank you so much for this extremely interesting discussion. Mark, would you say we know more about this issue now? Yes. Than we did on Monday. I've talked to an expert, and now I'm an expert, so I'm ready to give lectures on <laughs> And write some strong opinion pieces. There right? you go. Yeah, so thank you so much, Christian, for really just informing us about the nooks and crannies. I know, actually, there's probably more nooks and crannies to get into, but at least giving us the you know enough for a generalist to broach a specialist and have an intelligent conversation. We appreciate that. For people that have feedback, they can send us an email, podcast at christianitytoday.com. We're also on Twitter at CT Podcasts. Before we get to our final part of the show, I just want to take this time to remind everyone that this podcast is made possible by everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today magazine. And, you know, we've been kind of talking about Middle Eastern Christian communities in this episode um, with regards to all the stuff that still exists that relates back to our heritage in that part of the world. But obviously, Middle Eastern Christian communities increasingly are here in the U.S., and one of our pieces in our July-August issue actually addressed that. Do you you get a chance to read that, Mark? Yeah, it's uh, titled Detroit's Chaldeans, an American Story. It's a really good story that talks about the complicated situation that Iraqi Christians now face. It's a fairly large community, uh, tens of thousands of people there. I think there's another community in San Diego area as well. Many of these people had worked for the U.S. government during the, during the Iraq war, and then, and then they were, came to this country uh, after that or during that period. Or during Persian Gulf, too. Okay. Uh, Persian Gulf as well. So now many of them are being threatened with deportation. Uh, formally, it's, uh, it's the felons in that group that are uh, targeted. But, uh, you know, in any time there's a government action, there's always complications and, and, uh, of all sorts and how this ends up threatening the lives of people who have actually already paid their – because this has been going on for 10, 20, and 30 years. Some people have already paid their debt to society, and yet they're still considered subject to um, – to deportation. Uh, there's other people that are subject to deportation on what seems spurious grounds. Uh, there are uh, obviously anybody who's a criminal element and even on the side of terrorism, of course we want them out of the country, but it's just so much more complicated than that and so much more interesting because it's interwoven with families, with, with uh, Christian faith, with uh, foreign policy, with Christian history in the Middle East. So it gives you a glimpse of some of the lives of our brothers and sisters in Detroit and some of the things they're facing, and I'd encourage you to read it. Yes, definitely do so. If you'd like to read that particular piece on the Iraqi-American Christian community, you can do that by becoming a subscriber to Christianity Today magazine and getting our July-August issue. It is available online, and if you subscribe now, you can also get the print version as well. All right, now is the time of the show we call Precious Moments. Everyone can share something that has brought them joy in the past week. That is for you to go first, Mark. Yeah, I just spent uh, five days up in central Wisconsin on on the Mississippi, literally. I was at a campground right in the middle of the Mississippi. <laughs> on an <laughs> island? Front, on an island, yeah. How did you and get to the island? lots of tributaries. Well, there's a bridge, obviously. So. Oh, I thought you like maybe canoed out there. No, no, no. Uh, so I was there for a writing retreat. Um, most of my writing retreats are writing in the morning, and then my head gets just, you know, chock full of stuff that I can't do any more work, and then I go out and fish for a couple hours. So that was nice as well. Uh, but just to get, I did finish the second draft of a book that will be published next spring. We'll talk more about that later. And caught a few fish, made a few fish suffer then, before I put them back. 
Hopefully it wasn't the same fish. They didn't traumatize it. Exactly. All right. People can get your newsletter that comes out on Fridays. How? By uh, going to ChristianityToday.com slash The Galley Report. It's a weekly report. I link to articles and comment on them. And uh, other than being the very best weekly newsletter ever published in the history of journalism, (laughs) many people find it helpful. (laughs) Other than that. Other than that. All right, Christian, go ahead. I don't. It's it's not necessarily a thing that's happened, but we. Uh, I, I just really appreciated the the church group that I'm working with. It's got some um, two two young church planners have have put our church together and appreciated very much how much um, the role that two people who probably would never have gotten a job running a church that was this size now have have planted their own church that has about 150 people in it. And um, and the, see, seeing their own spiritual gifts and um, and just even their own vocational gifts and use in, in a way was something that was really exciting to me and um, something that was that was encouraging that uh, that a lot of times we value things based on experience and and other things but seeing two people succeeding. Well, how long has your church plant been around? I think about two years. Very cool. So where can people find you outside of this? I very occasionally blog at Evangelical Textual Criticism, and actually some of my fellow bloggers have followed this quite closely there. So a lot of things have shown up there. Um, my Usually you can find my email from my—I have a, a website that's a, a bit out of date, but I think it has some contact information on it. and um, Or you can get my email off of the blog, too, I think, if you look around enough. It is, it is a Google Sites, and it's— if you usually if you Google my name and the word Coptic, which is my main area of study, it'll come up. My last name is Askeland, A S K E L A N D. If you take the E out, it turns me into a Swede, so don't do that. It's a <laughs> Definitely won't. All right. My precious moment was probably getting a chance to see my coworkers in their natural environment. I got to visit my boss, Kate Jelnut, in Augusta last week. And then I went to go see our immigrant communities editor, or I stayed with her for a wedding in San Antonio on Saturday and Sunday. And I really miss, well, miss is a strong word because they never were in the office, but I really wish that they were in the office. But it is really cool also to get to see more about what part of the country that they live in. And in the case of both of them, actually, I got to meet um, people from their church. We were actually had lunch in the same area where Kate has church. So one of her pastors came out and chatted with us. And then Becca was preaching a sermon and I got to see her preach for that. So it was all very cool to get a chance to see more of that. All right. People can follow me on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. If you have feedback about this episode, you can email us. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. You can also rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. The podcast is available there or on Spotify, SoundCloud, Overcast, wherever you want to get your podcast, you can find it there. It's produced by myself and Cray Allred. The music is by Sweeps, and we will see you all next time. Thanks.